Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. John Semley is a prolific journalist and cultural critic based in Toronto who regularly contributes to the Globe and Mail and Maclean's magazine. His obsession with comedy led him to fall in love with true originals in the innovative Canadian troupe, The Kids in the Hall. Here now is a clip from the classic Kids in the Hall sketch, Screw You, Taxpayer! (laughs) (coughs) Wow, what a bad sketch. And in such poor taste, too. You know, we're going to get a lot of telephone calls and letters about this one. And why not? Because every Canadian has a right to complain about that sketch. Because every Canadian owns a piece of that sketch. You see, your tax dollars feed into the government, which in turn mandates the CBC, which in turn provides funding, both whole or in part, to shows such as ours. So... Like a cupful of water poured into an ocean, the atomic particles of your tax dollars mix with the whole and wind up providing for the budget of this show, uh, for the budget of that sketch, and for this piece I'm doing now, which we call... Screw you, taxpayer! Let's meet some of the other people behind the scenes. Hey, this is Peter Rasmoski. He's sort of in charge of the props on the show. Uh, Peter, that was a really nice props that the guys had uh, in that sketch. Oh, yes. Uh, even though I did not laugh at script and read-through, I had the prop made special. Special? How much would that cost? $1,250. <laughs> I could have got for less, but I thought, why should I bargain? Uh, <laughs> it's not my money. Uh, screw you, takes pay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Scott? Yeah, come over here. Hey, Mark. Hi. You were Hi. featured pretty prominently in that sketch, weren't you? Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. And you must get paid pretty well, don't you? Well, Mark, what do you think this means, huh? <laughs> Anything you want to say for yourself? Actually, yes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say hello to all the taxpayers and screw you. <laughs> and second of all, I'd like to take a little bit of our national network airtime to advocate that I be allowed to masturbate in public buildings. <laughs> ECW Press has just published This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall, Semley's exhaustive and engaging overview of the life and times of Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson, otherwise known as the Kids in the Hall. Semley and I recently met at his home to discuss his own trajectory as a fan and journalist. 
the smug and sincere world of comedy, the history of the kids in the hall, and much more. So, here we go. This is myself and John Semley talking about the kids in the hall on Creative Control. John, thank you for having me in your home. Thanks for being in my home. What? Where? What is this place that we're in? Bl- uh, Bloorsdale, I was going to say. Bloordale. Is that what it's called? Yeah, near Bloor Lansdowne. Bloordale? Is that what it's called? That's what they... You know how they micro-compartmentalize yeah. neighborhoods in Toronto? Um, this is the neighborhood where just as of yesterday, there was a... Uh, toxic gas event i heard that you couldn't go outside there was a cloudy yes mist and they yeah were it's like to stay inside in don delillo's white noise uh, the toxic <laughs> airborne event but of course i found out about this like i got home uh and sort of checked my phone and facebook and all my friends are messaging me like don't go outside don't go outside right it's like oh, i've been walking around for 20 minutes uh, <laughs> i don't understand how you find that out on your way home like what are you supposed to think you know you're on your you're walking home Exactly. Well, I mean, I, I'm a bit south of it, so oh, okay. uh, they got it all cleaned up. Well, do you know what it was? I don't. It was it was sulfuric mist. Of I don't course, know. of course, it was sulfuric mist. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it sounds like the origin story of like a you know the Toxic Avenger, like the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah, you or could something. be a superhero in the making. Right oh here. God, that's all I need is that responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to be here and and to meet you. We've never met. I don't. Think. Yeah, likewise, likewise. We've probably been in the same rooms, concerts, or yeah. Yeah, did you go to the? Um, I know you're a fan. Did you go to the Sharpling and Worcester show? At the I Monk did. Club? Yeah, I was yes. there. I was at that. Thing. Yeah, that was. I remember that. I went to the. Went to get a beer, and the bartender at the mod club is like, "What is this? Like, what is oh, going they didn't understand. on?" No, and I mean, and that's an example of a comedy thing that is so inside. Yeah, like you have yeah. to be inside of it to get any of the. Yeah, jokes. that's true. Like I, I, and I noticed that the you could see that you, I could sort of see people, uh, boyfriends or girlfriends, brought their partners or vice whatever. They people were just brought their dates. And you could see that some of them just looked puzzled. Yeah. As to what you what have you brought me to here? Yeah. Which, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I had a tremendous time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of those guys. Yeah. I've got a uh, the box set around the corner. Do you somewhere. have the box set? I do. Did yeah. You get a piece of the phone. Uh, I did. Yes. Good for you. It's still in there. Uh, of course, I'm a fool, and I, when I got it, I didn't know there was a USB stick. Oh. So I spent like five hours ripping CDs <laughs> onto my old computer. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, and and that, that that's fine. I mean, those guys. Would you say they are related in any way to the kids in the hall? Do you see a trajectory there, a through line? Uh, maybe. I mean, uh, well, Tom Sharpling was nice enough to blurb the book, I incidentally, um, and we just kind of struck up a conversation because he had Kevin McDonald from the Kids in the Hall on the show. Um, and in Canada, if you want to clear stuff that's been used by previous sources, you can't just take it like yeah. you can in the States. So I had to email him and ask for permission. He said, of course. But I don't know. I, I, Sharpling and Worcester to me is sort of its own thing. Yeah. I mean, there's something of SCTV in yeah. them in the way that they create this sort of fake city of Newbridge with its various denizens and locales. Yep. Um, Kids in the Hall doesn't really do that. Tim and Eric, I guess, kind of did that yep. with, with Tom Goes to the Mayor. But yeah, I mean, to them, it's more... I mean, phone comedy is its own... It's radio. It's, yeah, it's a throwback almost. Sort of radio, thing. Radio plays of... of- Yonder? What? I don't know what to what? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's not right. I don't think yonder. But uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. There, if I if I could, re- for the sake of relating it to the kids sure. in the hall, I say that. Uh, I mean, a lot of the humor in Sharpling and Worcester basically comes out of m- most of Worcester's characters are people who are sort of smugly self confident. Yes, uh, and don't 
understand that they're delusional and in that way become kind of pitiable. Um, and there's a lot of characters like that on Kids in the Hall that you see. I mean, uh, I write about this in the book, I think, where, you know, they have the businessmen or the sort of bad dad characters. Yeah. And they're there to be mocked and to be made fun of. But there's a level of obliviousness to it that makes them a bit more sympathetic. Right. They don't. And, and, and in some ways, if, if you're if we're really going to connect Sharpling and Worcester to Kids in the Hall, Tom is almost like a viewer of the show. Like he's he's an incredulous like what exactly like, what are exactly. you doing why are you doing that kind of like yeah so I I I, I wondered about that because you're you, you seem to be a fan of groundbreaking alternative <laughs> comedy right sure yeah I like that stuff I mean Kids <laughs> Hall is big for me Mr Show was huge right. for me um, I. I always say, I'm always saying this, what I'm about to say, every day I say it, but I think sort of the trifecta for comedy for me was Kids in the Hall and Mr. Show and The Simpsons, which is right. not sketch, obviously, right. but that's the sort of uh, predator style triangle through which I can like line up how I see the world. Right, and you saw, at least Kids in the Hall, you talk about this in the book, and I think it happened with The Simpsons with you as well. It happened to me a little bit. I started watching The Simpsons when it was on primetime. Right. But then it became syndicated. And so you'd get home from school and I don't your experience, I don't know if it was the same as mine, but I had it's sort of bizarre to me that when I was like not even ten, I could watch Cheers and Night Court and The Simpsons, which are not for kids, really, at any way, I would say. And did you did you have a similar kind of upbringing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, Kids in the Hall, I sort of came up watching when the Comedy Network would put it on in syndication. And I right. think it used to be in a 4 o'clock or a 4.30 slot. And I remember there was In like, the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Seems bizarre to me. And Yeah, and but there was this... I remember like being able to work it out because especially growing up in Niagara where we would get a lot of the U.S. stations a lot clearer, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, you could string together a block of two hours where you're watching nothing but The Simpsons in syndication. Right, you'd hop around. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and CFMT to Fox 29 and, right. this and this and that. But uh, yeah, and as I, I try to write about that idea that you kind of become obsessed with things and this sort of insane culture of fandom and stuff that we live in now, yeah. which is a bit much even for me to fathom, like it's got even deeper than people of my generation can kind of make sense of. Um, but I think that all kind of started in a way with watching stuff in syndication, watching yeah. stuff in repeats. Uh, what's the Springsteen song? 57 channels and nothing. That's on. right. That's right. Uh, it's like that, except like 57 that. channels and only the Simpsons is on. You know? <laughs> so were you uh, primarily like, were you, you're a music guy too? You like music? I like music. My, I would say my taste in music is more limited. I don't write about music as much as I like because I can't, I can't fake it. Like I can't review a bad album like I can a bad movie or a bad book, huh. but there's stuff that I like, but that, you know, at the same time, it'll be like, uh, to, I can't pitch the global mail and be like, let me write about this, like pioneering female black metal artist. Right. And they'll be sure. like, yeah, nobody cares. You're a metal guy. You're most <laughs> I like, metal. I like that stuff. And, and I like a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, but gr- I, growing up in Niagara, you, do you remember if it was comedy? Like you say you got home and you'd watch the Simpsons, like you'd figure out how to watch the Simpsons yeah. all day basically but were you a music person first yeah comedy and like classic rock like listening to classic rock radio with my dad and then from that hearing like paranoid and run to the hills like the sort of metal songs that would make it into the classic rock sure. rotation uh and then from there by like middle school it was a lot of that stuff and also I used to be into like 
in that day it was like a big period for like big beat electro like oh, a lot okay. of like prodigy records and chemical brothers records but it was, it was such a small town and like no scene or anything or you know the internet was just kind of bubbling up so it's like i would listen to a prodigy record and i wouldn't even really know that it wasn't rock music you know oh i see like i wasn't even aware that there was like this thing called electro music right because it would play on the alt rock stations and you would see it in the much countdown and all this stuff and you know those guys had their stupid cartoonish like 90s bad boy poses um but yeah and then in high school um was a bit in the sort of like metalcore hardcore scene uh-huh. but pretty much a poser like pretty much went to the shows for something to do because you're was, a fan did you play music uh not really okay. no but uh yeah went went to any you know, I had buddies in like screamo bands and stuff right. you know i grew up around like when alexis on fire was coming up in st Catharines. yeah so that was like the sort of style or the thing that everyone wanted to be for better or worse mm-hmm. or we would go to hardcore shows in buffalo and stuff like that right but i never really liked it as much as i wasn't as sincere about it as some of my friends were about music about that kind of music. Oh, I see. About like going to an 18 Visions concert. I'm like, sure. yeah, I'll go because what am I going to do? And, you know, we'll like drink shitty beer and mosh and right. be teenagers. Right. Um, but then the stuff I really got into in high school is coming across like Constellation Records stuff. Oh, okay. Like, you know, so I'd be like the loser who would be dr- listening to like F sharp, A sharp, Infinity by Godspeed, right. you Black Emperor in his car. <laughs> You're not a loser. That's not a loser. You're not a loser. Don't call yourself a loser. I felt, like, a loser. That, I felt like that at the time. Okay, <laughs> if you say so. I'm being self-deprecating. It's I understand supposed to, that. It's meant to be charming. I, and it was. <laughs> but I worry at the same time because, you know, Godspeed, it's kind of a cool thing to like now. Oh, for sure. And you felt like a loser liking it when you first But really, it. I was just ahead of the curve. You were. Uh, but I'll tell you the commingling. This is a thing about this sort of post-taste era or something. I went to those shows in Montreal where it was co-headlining Neurosis and Godspeed You Black yeah. Emperor. And it's like, that is a thing. And I used to, I still love Neurosis. I think they're one of the great bands. But it's like, I would have never imagined that that would be a bill. If you were to tell me in high school, yeah. I would have lost my mind. And I mean, I lost my mind as an adult when they announced it. <laughs> but this is a thing is we live in this kind of era, which is easy to make fun of. This is why I have a hard time keeping up with music, because I feel like there's an expectation to have opinions about things you don't like. It's a, you're encouraged to be a generalist. Yeah. Or it's like, if I don't, if I don't like a Justin Bieber single, like I'm a hater or something. And it's like, it's not even about hate. It's like, I just don't care. Right. You're supposed to talk about everything. (laughs) Exactly. Even if you have no foothold in it or expertise or opinion. Yeah. You're just expected to say something. But at the same time, it's like, oh, you could conceivably double bill like an experimental metal band and like this sort of, what do you even call it? Post-rock, I guess. Yeah, whatever. They don't like that. But yeah, yeah, it's a stupid term. Yes, no one knows what the whatever Godspeed is. Yeah, yeah but it and, and it's one of those things that just kind of when you see it, it intuitively makes sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think it would have made sense as much maybe but fifteen all, years ago. The things you're talking about are sort of dark. They're sort of angsty. Yeah, for sure. And then the comedy you gravitated gravitated towards was at least a little sardonic, a little yeah. edgy. So you have this. You, I see a darkness in you, John, is oh, what I'm no. saying. Is that what's going on? Um, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I do think about that stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I, The Kids in the Hall definitely is like a dark show it's to me. It's pretty dark. Mr. Show is like, there's dark stuff on it. Uh, or Well, Mr. Show in particular is not only dark, but it's it's so critical. 
Yeah. Of everything. Contemptuous. <laughs> contemptuous. Yes, yeah. exactly. And Tim and Eric is like super dark. I mean, yeah. people toss the word Lynchian around a lot, but I think that a lot of Tim and Eric stuff, especially their bedtime story show, yeah. like that's actually Lynchian. Like that's about taking the sort of banality of everyday life and making it horrifying. But there's a certain amount of, if you're a fan of those things, there's a certain level of escapism because they make things so surreal mm-hmm. that you lose yourself a little bit. You just kind of lose track of wherever you are because yeah. you're like what, what is this world I'm being brought into so you're drawn to that stuff yeah obviously. and I think that humor I, th- I think that the humor I like is always so I mean it's impossible to talk about anything without being self-conscious like to say I like dark humor no and, I know like, oh I like to tell dead baby jokes or like something pathetic <laughs> well no but I mean I'm trying to get a, <laughs> yeah, people yeah. a sense of you sure so, yeah, yeah but I mean, no I, I do think that humor is one of the best best ways at like dealing with dark subjects and in literature too like a lot of the books i gravitated to were like like when you're a teenager and you read like kafka and it's mind-blowing because it's this these the crazy little fairy tales and they're funny and they're sort of like suicidally depressing at the same time and you can't really make sense of it but there's something you know that whole whistling past the grave thing. There's a little bit of existential crises occurring in the kids in the hall, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think that like a lot of the humor proceeds from them being outcasts. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a little rich to say, oh, these like white guys with Mick last names in Canada uh, are outcasts. Yeah. But I think they all kind of came from a, a place comedically and in their personal lives where like they weren't the cool guys. And of course that is what ends up making them the cool guys. Right. Well, you mentioned in your... By the way, I haven't said this yet, but your book's amazing. Oh, thank you so much. It's called uh, This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall. Yeah. It's a very bad title. No, it's not a bad title. It's just a mouthful to say off the top of my head. Right. Uh, Or mindful to say. But anyway, it's a great book. And uh, as someone who's followed that troupe and got to see them in sort of the early days, or or maybe I think the first time I saw them live was actually just post the series. Okay. But I followed the series. I just, I don't think I was an appropriate age to go see the kids in the hall live. Right. Maybe they didn't do it so much. But anyway, I followed them very closely and certainly saw Brain Candy in the theaters, you know, like I'm old, is my point here, Hey, I saw Brain Candy in theaters. Did you? It just just kind of went over my head. I think I would have been nine or ten. You got into Brain Candy at nine or ten years old? Maybe. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, we used to, there was a small movie theater and oh. uh, my mom used to be pretty good about, maybe this is incriminating if people hear it, but she's retired. So what are they going to do to I her? think, to be honest, the brain candy is like PG-13. Yeah, It's yeah. not restricted. But she, used, she used to be good about buying a ticket and then like coming to the theater with me and my friends and then just like meeting us in the parking right. lot after. Right, right, right. If we wanted to see an R-rated movie or something. You could do that. Yeah. That's good. And that probably gives you, a, gave you an entry point into... You say you like movies. Well, not really, because we were seeing utter trash. Like, mom, take us to see Spawn the movie because <laughs> like they won't let <laughs> right, us in. Right, you know, right. it's not like we were going to see Last Tango in Paris and like needed right. adult accompaniment or sure. something. Sure, no, I, I hear you. Well, <laughs> the point is, like, you know, in the book, you talk about their backgrounds mm-hmm. and their. Uh, I think everyone but Mark McKinney had kind of a dad issue, right? Yeah. And Mark McKinney, in his own way, had a dad who was like an absent, uh, you know, government bureaucrat father. They all kind of follow around. Yeah, they moved around around a lot. Uh, Yeah, they all kind of had dad issues in one way or the other, Uh, which is why I think dads are one of the main subjects on the show that they make fun of. Dads and businessmen in particular. Authority. I mean, it's... Right. And that's pre-Mr. Show. I mean, Mr. Show, to me, is like almost a... 
satirical recasting of the sort of Gen X grunge sensibility. Yeah. Like it's when it becomes ironic where it's like, uh, I hate this is already in quotes, but the kids in the hall was like, I hate this. I, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think these people are foolish. So when you say they, they, the, when you talk about their backgrounds, that is a, that really informs a lot of their sensibility. I think so. I mean, and I know I literally cite Freud in the book, but you do. I want to be careful about sort of these cheap, psychopathologies of these people as men but all i can say is like what i know about their personal histories and what comes out in the show and yeah i mean i think there is a connection in that sense i I remember being struck by that section of the book because i don't i mean i just don't know your background is is, is psychology psychological studies is that what i read a lot of and read a lot of and studying schools like critical theory they call it now which a lot of is like pro post freudian theory uh so as much as I don't necessarily believe in that stuff as a psychological system, I do think you find in that a lot of sort of useful <laughs> myths for like how to understand the Western world, like yeah. how to understand relationships of authority. And again, I don't think it's like inalienably true, but it's true in some cases right? Um, that, you know, sons have issues with their dads. Well, sons want to fight their dads. Right. And then, <laughs> so, okay. So they've got all this lampooning of, father figures, authority figures, among their uh, real innovations was uh, embracing, I guess you'd call it cross-dressing. Right, yeah. For lack of a better term, like they would go and drag. Right. Uh, And that was also unique. They really embraced it. And, you know, full on, uh, you know, (laughs) I was going to say man-on-man action, (laughs) but they would kiss each other on stage. There's a sketch I write about at length, Comfortable, where the sort of dinner party that breaks down and it ends with Scott Thompson like mounting his best friend's wife played right. by Kevin McDonald. Right. But the word drag is something I try to think about in the book a bit because yes. when you think like, when you think about drag, you think about a sort of performance of the opposite gender in a very sort of broad stereotypical way. And you look at Monty Python and like that's what they would do with drag. Right. It's like I'm playing an old crone and the joke is sort of isn't that funny that I'm a man in a dress. But the, for the kids in the hall, I mean they do have jokes like that, but a lot of the drag was just well we want to have female characters and there's no women in the troupe, which itself was pragmatic. Whenever they would try to have women in, they would end up getting poached by Second City or whatever. Yes, I remember that, yeah. So we have to play these characters ourselves. And, you know, maybe you can say they're three-dimensional characters, two-dimensional characters, maybe. But they're not, the joke is not just that it's drag, that it's a man in a dress. You're right. Like, they're they're playing female characters who are themselves making jokes. Right, no, and that and that's a fair point. But does that speak to any of the uh, their comfort level with that? I think so. I mean, there is something transgressive about it. I guess. Yeah. I mean, in the eighties and nineties, you know, there was something, and especially with Scott Thompson and the troop. I mean, I think when people think about the kids in the hall, there's a gayness or queerness to it. I guess, which is w- w- part of its lingering legacy. But I think there's also like a pragmatic analysis of manhood. Yeah, for sure. What it means to be a man, and what it, and I mean it. Again, I'm not a. I don't have a background in you know psych, psychology per se. But it, as I was reading your book, that all kind of came out like it just sort of came up for me. Like this notion of them constantly lampooning, critiquing, questioning this notion of manhood. Right. Well, they kind of grew up with these sort of, uh, you know, greatest generation stiff, repressed dads. Like I guess 
you know, like my own father, certainly his father to an extent, you know, you know, this idea of a Canadian dad that you have, you know, sitting in the Barca lounger, drinking a glass of Canadian club, uh, would never tell you he loved you basically. And this isn't a Canadian character, but like Martin Crane on Frasier, like this, this sort of idea of, uh, a sort of, you know, emotionally repressed, like hemorrhoid pillow owning father. Uh, yeah. So I think when you come out of that and you sort of realize the effect that it has on you, uh, it is transgressive, I guess, to not be like that. So did you relate to them because of any, like, per, did, did that resonate with you personally or was that just, well, it, is it, that something you discovered in writing the book or is that like in certain, in certain yeah. ways? I mean, we all have sort of issues with, uh, with parents and stuff like that. But when I was growing up, I love my parents and stuff like that. I don't want to sound ungrateful. Uh, But it's like, if you're a little different, maybe, and not not necessarily supportive of that, or like not getting that, there's not a handbook of how to raise a kid, or they might do stuff that's, they might like music, or they might get in trouble, but it's okay. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Were were you like, were you, I, I think part of me was drawn to stuff that I didn't think I was supposed to see. Right, for sure. There's a, with the kids in the hall, for sure. There's like a your parents walk in on you watching it. You change the channel really yeah, quick. Yeah. Uh, there it has that quality for sure. Yeah. Um, which I remember a bit of, but and a lot of that is like you know the the the, the cross dressing and just the stupidity of it. Uh, yeah. Like I remember as a kid, uh, being embarrassed watching like chicken lady sketches. And yeah, there's ones where she like has an orgasm and feathers go everywhere. <laughs> but it's more just like the idiocy of it. Yeah. Like that was a thing growing up too. It's like, I was always, always worried that my parents thought I was like an idiot because <laughs> I would like stupid stuff or right, like, sure. I, you know, I went to a Catholic school on an out of uniform days. Like me and my friends would just dress like idiots. Right. Like we would be wearing like, 70s bell bottoms and like trying to look like Kramer because we thought it was like cool, right? Just weirdos. You were kind of an idiot. You were, I was an idiot, yeah, but a smart idiot, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But or you know, my parents never liked my friends because the sort of assumption is, well, they got to be idiots too if they're friends with this guy, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So there, there was always that sort of worry, uh, with the kids in the halls, like there's. Or, you know, you think of like flying pig or these things and it's just like... They were silly, stupid things. Yeah. They were just funny. Like, they made them laugh and they made us laugh. Exactly. Yeah. That's what comedy's supposed to do. Right. But uh, I can understand. Yeah. I think I sh- tried to weirdly shield my parents from some of the stuff I like too. It's like my friends and I talk about this a lot, how when you're a kid and you're watching a movie with your family and you know when like a nipple or something yeah. is coming up and you like plan to go get like a Coke or to go to the right, washroom. Right, you leave the room. When it's happening because the worst feeling in the world is like being in the room when you're like 12 and there's like a breast and you and your dad are in the same room. Well, you don't, it's for me, I was always like, I just don't want to have to explain this. Yeah. Like it's awkward, but I just did, it was more awkward to me, the prospect of having to try to explain what I was seeing right in some way or commenting on it. Yeah. It's, it's pure pain. But anyway, so you discovered them, uh, on reruns and they spoke to you personally. You, the, I feel like the first thing I encountered between you and the kids in the hall was this oral history. Is that For now magazine? Yeah. In 2013. Yeah. And a lot of the interviews in the book sort of came out of that. Cause yeah. I did so much researching and, I mean, the genesis of the book was really that story. Yeah. You know what it's like as a journalist, you get so much material and then it's like even a bigger story like that. It's like, I have all this stuff. 
I did a Godspeed You Black Emperor timeline for Exclaim Magazine, and it's insanely long, and I should turn that into a book probably yeah. if someone wants to, if someone listening wants me to write a book <laughs> about Godspeed for them, I would be happy to do it. It's pretty much done. But is that, so that's what happened. You had basically all your access to them was from that period. Uh, and before there's, okay. there's a lot of other interviews I've done with them over the years. And then basically what happened is I got a literary agent and the question came like, what is a thing you could sit down and start writing a book about tomorrow? Right. And the answer in my mind was the kids in the hall, like something I knew a lot about, right. cared a lot about. Um, so yeah, we just kind of went from there. But the other thing is that now oral history and this might sound a bit horn tooty, but that was a huge story. Like, uh, I was the online editor at now at the time. So I would compulsively yep. look at traffic and yep. all this stuff. And that was like the second ranked story all year after like best pizza in Toronto. <laughs> and that was the year when Rob Ford was like smoking crack right, and right. talking about how much he loves to eat out his wife. Can I say eat out? Yeah, you can say eat out. Yeah. Sure. Anyways, I'm not saying it. He was saying it. Okay. Yeah. He's the disgusting well, you mentioned the pig. best, best pizza link too. So, but it's a little, gray area. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, the point is like in a year where there was no shortage of like local yeah, scandal yeah. People, that now and everyone was reporting on there were still like hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to read an oral history about the kids in the hall what does that say about i mean obviously that says something about the kids in the hall and maybe the answer is obvious but uh at the same time they still seem like this cult phenomenon to so many of us and you talk about that in the book uh, a lot too and and they talk about that uh, themselves, you know, there's this quote from Bruce McCullough about how everything they touch turns to cult, right? Which I viewed as this that could be a point of pride, that could be a point of like we're just doomed to be obscure, yeah. But, uh, for whatever reason, it helps them, it helps people like us champion them, doesn't it? Exactly, but at the same time, most well, except for some pizza. And that's the bet most read stories. So something's going on with this. But still, I mean, group of people. you know, again, for the context to say that it was the second most read story at now magazine, a Toronto all weekly in a yeah. year, that's still a pretty, no, it's still narrow pretty small, focus. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it, especially with the Toronto connection is, I mean, now Toronto is like certifiably cool. Like sure. it's a cool place to live. It's a cool place to visit. When I go to like Canadian music week parties and people from New York are like, Oh, we used to hate coming up to Toronto, but like now we love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that's basically because of Drake and the right. Raptors and the blue Jays. And that's great. But you go back further and some people will say 10, 15 years ago, broken social scene. Oh, that's when Toronto became cool. And it's nice for me and some other people, I guess, to be like, well, what about 20 years before that when there was like this super weird, hyper original sketch comedy troupe? And like, you know, at the time, I you could make all these jokes about kids in the hall, like Toronto's original collective, and all, you know, the, sure. the original Seattle moment. Right, right. Um, in some ways, that's not that off the mark, is it? Well, the Seattle, the grunge thing is something that I sort of try to drive home a bit, right. where it's that same sort of disaffected flannel shirt sensibility right. just coming out in the form of jokes instead of like, mournful guitar solos yeah but yeah and i think that's also a period where you know when i talk about queen west in the book like the queen west that's described to me or that i read about when i'm reading about queen west in the mid 80s which i have no firsthand experience of is like a foreign country it's like describing leipzig or something yeah 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 it's like oh there was like you know people like junkies and punks everywhere it's like what there's like a knapsack store and like an A and W there now. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, Toronto's different, and it's that's that's for someone who who's familiar with the city, spends a lot of time in Toronto. That's the other window into this culture that I'm grateful for. 
uh, because of your book, because I had sort of blanked on the fact that they really set up uh, a, a place like a home base at the Rivoli. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you walk into the Rivoli, it's kind of an unassuming little place at the back of the restaurant or whatever that whatever right. it is but th- th- it's amazing that it's like this weird comedy mecca right well i think that that's the other thing that really made it work is because uh you know and i love comedy but i gotta tell you i hate going to comedy clubs like, yeah even the cool yeah. ones like comedy bar it's like there's something ab- about it something it, about it rubs me the wrong way i don't know but at the time it's like okay you would go to second city is or it be- the pressure is it the because i would think more than even a rock show, you go into a comedy club, there is a, I feel like the atmosphere is a little tense. Yeah. I mean, it has the same quality to me as live theater, yeah. which is that I like, you go to a movie and there's like, it's almost like a film. Well, no pun, but like, there's like a, it's <laughs> oh, I see like there's a, a barrier, a barrier right, between right. you and what's going on. Same at a concert in a way, because there's so many people there and there, it's not like you're supposed to be observant or necessarily reverent of it in a way, but it's like you kind of end up feeling embarrassed for people or something or it's not at a comedy club at a comedy club. Even, even when people are funny, it's like there's an intimacy to it that I don't like. Like, I don't like that a person can like look at me and like see me and stuff like that. Well, it's also, I think the fact that a musician or ready to pop the question, the jewelers at blue Nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Some of the other uh, platforms we were discussing, there's some kind of, like for a musician, they have a guitar, they have drums, they have a microphone, something that they're kind of working with. Uh, right. Theater might be the same thing on some level, but comedian walks up on stage with a microphone. Right. And so the intimacy level is, and right away it's heightened compared to almost any other thing. And it's just them in their mind going to, we're, we're going to experience their them and their perspective together and it could fail. Yeah. And I think it creates this slight tension in the atmosphere. Right. What are they going to do? Like, what are they going to do to make us laugh? Exactly. And, you know, you you live and die on that last laugh. But I think why I brought this up is because with the Rivoli, I think there's something to be said about seeing comedy in a context where it's not known for comedy. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the yeah. kids in the hall will be here, but oh, there's a punk band the next night. Or, oh, there's like a cl- weird clown acrobat from OCAD yeah. the night before. <laughs> and I think in that context, there's less pressure yeah you know yeah. uh like if i go to comedy shows like they'll be at like the ozington on ozington yeah. it's like a bar and they have a comedy night and stuff like that yeah. and when you're less in that sort of two drink minimum comedy club red light flashing time to take your seats uh environment i feel like you're kind of your guard is let down and you can be exposed to things that are funnier or weirder and that 
Yeah. And I mean, I love to laugh. I love jokes, but like a lot of time, I'd rather just like watch a funny movie or sit around. You don't like live. Com- you jokes. don't like live comedy generally. <sighs> Sometimes. I mean, here's the thing. My enjoyment of it at the time, I'm always like, why don't I do this more often? And then I just don't end up doing it yeah, more often. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like a friend of mine summed it up really well, where he says there's nothing, nothing more embarrassing than a man telling a joke. <laughs> Like, <laughs> there is this thing among uh, I've, I grew up with some people like this who really hated comedians the kind of smug notion that they might be smarter or funnier, or, yeah. funnier than you I think it puts some people off I've had bad experiences in like the real world with comedians and there's people who are always on or like yeah. they can't give it away and like I have friends I have like funny friends a lot of my friends are like the funniest people I know in the world and they're not comedians but we like sit around cracking jokes and stuff like that but a lot of times you try to do that with comedians and they're almost like stroking their chin or like they're trying to find an angle into it well or they'll do it they'll do shtick i you will know? i do find that in my job if this is a job in my various jobs interviewing people i find comedians to be the most unpredictable and often difficult interviews right because uh and i've learned this the hard way um and in some cases i've just been told it's true you you're very good at here's where I'm going with this and I'm going to I'm going to take my deficiency and turn it into a compliment for you. Wow. Here's what watch this. <laughs> this is like magic. Well, I used to interview comedians and I think when you're starting out interviewing people or you first begin interviewing comedians, there is this impulse because you follow them and you follow comedy and you're uh, you're a journalist that you might be as funny as them or you try to be funny i've done that it's very dangerous right because what then what happens is the comedians like ah oh, great i got to talk to someone else who thinks they're hilarious right and then they're immediately uh you know their back is up a little bit so i've learned when i'm talking to comedians uh unless i feel like a natural chemistry or it feels like i can throw in a little thing but i have learned to just be the straight interviewer and let Mm. them be funny but it still doesn't always work out i think comedians there's a neurosis there is a slight conceitedness or egocentrism or something that goes on there that we don't i don't encounter with with authors or musicians there's maybe more humility i don't know i think there's something about the comedian comedian's lifestyle like i like i said earlier it's just you and your brain and a microphone Right. You're not hiding behind anything else. I think it gives you a, a tough exterior. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, certainly some of the worst interviews I've done are with comedians. And for both reasons that you're describing. I mean, I remember the first time I interviewed Tim and Eric, like I was trying to be like a yuck em up, like making jokes. And I, yeah, it was totally that. They're like, who is this idiot? Right. And, oh, I. by but, the way, I forgot to turn this into the compliment part. Oh. I only talked about my deficiency. And people like me. Uh, but I also made it a feel-good story, right? Because yeah, I exactly. turned around is right. I've come to terms with what I need to be doing in my job. Right. What I was going to say is what you've done so magically is you've written a book about the kids in the hall, and your prose is funny. You're, you write funny. Right. I appreciate that. And it's an entertaining... It's not simply a... I wasn't just like hungry for the tidbits about the kids in the hall. I liked your approach which was sort of irreverent and, and very present. Like it feels very contemporary. You're kind of dropping little references to stuff. That's a bold idea. Yeah. You kind of... Ins- Some readers don't like it, I should say. Oh, is that right? Well, you know... You're reading all your reviews. I've become a, a vain, egotistical Well, you want to know what people maniac. are saying. But, so some people might not 
is it the same thing that they're like this guy thinks he's as funny he as he should a, leave himself out of it right he thinks he's as, I, one thing was like uh he thinks he's as funny as they are but he's not it's like i don't think i'm as funny as they are but but that's that's the that's the thing when we do what we do and we're talking to people you kind of want what you're doing i think is you're trying to convey to them that you are engaged in their culture exactly yeah and so you're trying to say i'm i am as it's possible i might have a joke because i just i'm immersed in joke culture and comedy culture right so you're trying to relate to them but it can actually backfire horribly yeah and i mean some of the best compliments that i've had about the book are from friends who are like uh oh reading it feels like talking to you right which would normally horrify me because when <laughs> i write journalism i mean the reason that i love writing is because i find when I have the time to like sort of be alone with my thoughts and get them into order, I find I'm able to think about things more clearly and to bring that clarity into writing about them. Um, But a book, when you have this larger canvas, it's like I didn't want to maintain that sustained sense of intensity or like critical seriousness. So like I wanted to write it more informally and I wanted it to sound like not funny, but I guess irreverent. Yeah, I mean that's all conscientious. Well, but you're critical too. Like it's not hagiography. It's you are actually like you talk about the fact that when the kids in the hall sort of broke apart for a spell uh, after. Basically, for those who don't know, I guess we should summarize a little sure. bit. Sure. Yeah. You tell the story about the kids in the hall, how they came together, uh, and it's basically this cross country connection where. Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney were in Alberta, Alberta, in Alberta doing comedy, and uh, Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley were in Toronto doing comedy as the kids in the hall. And uh, Bruce and Mark moved to Ontario to Toronto because Bruce was really into punk, and mm-hmm. Toronto was where punk was in Canada. So and comedy as well. So they moved to, to Ontario. They become the kids in the hall. Scott Thompson throws donuts at them, kind of as weirdly heckling them. Uh, during one of their performances, he ends up in the kids in the hall. Uh, they end up with this TV talk show after uh, gaining a reputation for their live show. <clears throat> the the uh, TV show is on HBO. It's on CBC. It's eventually on CBS. Yeah. And uh, you really read the book. Eh? I did. Yeah. And then <laughs> they uh, shadowy man on a shadowy planet. One of my favorite bands of all time. Do the the, the songs and. Uh, cheap strip music, Lord Michaels called it. Yeah, when Don Pyle and I were talking about it, he 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 used the term cheap porno music, but right. strips porno. I, I I remember being struck by that because I'd never heard that before. Yeah, Lord Michaels didn't, and I want to talk about Lord Michaels because you talked to Lord Michaels. Yeah, for the book or was it for, for the, the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was that? Oh my god, it was so funny. Um, was it did it take? Was it a hard thing to get done? It was hard to get him on the phone, like just to schedule it. It kept getting rescheduled because he's like he owns more minutes of television than anyone. Yeah, in the he history does right now. Medium. Yeah, yeah. You know, he produces everything, and he's Lauren Michaels. Uh, but it was pretty funny. I mean, I recently interviewed Warren Beatty, so I think Lauren Michaels goes to number two for like most famous person I've ever talked yeah, to. Yeah, you. But I, I saw that. Yeah, I, I remember saying that to Lauren Michaels. I was like, you know, I think you're probably the most famous guy I've ever talked to. He's like. Well, who would be the second most famous person you've ever spoken to? I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe Will Ferrell? He says, well, I'm certainly more famous than Will Ferrell. <laughs> That's a good Lorne, by the way. Everyone, very every, strong. Everyone has a good Lorne Michaels Everyone impression. does kind of a Lorne Michaels impression. Yeah, I can't do it's it. Like Yours was better. Dr. Evil. Yes. But, uh, he was really great and so, so uh, giving. Uh, Were you freaked out talking to I'd be a little freaked out talking to Lorne Michaels. Yeah, a little nerve wracking just because of like the. 
the pomp and circumstance, like his assistant. Okay, we're going to have 20 minutes with Lauren for you. Right. 90 minutes. We'll give you a call. We'll patch you through. Right, right. It's like you're getting on with the president or something. Um, but he was really nice. And like the thing that really struck me is he was so eager and proud of the kids in the hall. Yeah, he loves like, he the was, kids in the hall. He was proud that he had his name on this thing. Comes through in the book. Yeah. And it's like when you think about it now that like this is a guy who you know produces like the tonight show the biggest shows on tv and saturday night live and saturday night live and then these little documentary now yeah. portlandia all these things yeah but it's like he still has like a real pride of place for yep. the kids in the hall yeah um and the other thing that was good to talk to him is he was so quick to like fact check things that the, like the other guys in the troop oh had said did he know it off the top of his head basically huh. yeah like so quick to be like like, oh, I never told Scott Thompson that being gay is the kiss of death. That's a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. But then, like, kind of back by the like, you know, I did explain that you might not want to be openly gay because it limits your chances. I'm like, oh, so I mean, you know, kiss of death may be a euphemism, but right, right. in as many words. I could see Scott interpreting it as, as that. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's, a, that's like, I, it's, it's a, such a vivid story because there's so many amazingly talented people whose voices, like Bob Odenkirk and all these people show up in your book. And, you know, knowing how things work, I assume you've talked to them about other things and you managed to throw, yeah. in, throw in the odd kids in the hall question. Yeah, well, the Odenkirk one was certainly that. I was talking to him and David Cross about this sort of Mr. Show revival right, for, with Bob and David on yeah, Netflix. Yeah. Uh, and that was a case of just kind of like sliding in. Yeah, some kids in the That's, hall stuff. So like a, a cheap reporterly trick. <laughs> no, it's but good. people like uh, Janine Garofalo was another yeah. really funny interview just because I made so many overtures to get through to her through various people and you know, you know how it is often when you're trying to contact yeah. people where you can tell they the manager or the agent is not even approaching them. They're just yeah, like no. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I forget what I said, but I said something I was like, look, if you just I guarantee if you just ask her, she'll she might want to talk. Yeah. So, you know, what does it take? And then I'm over at the coffee shop. I'm coming home, bringing my laundry home, and my phone rings. And it was an unknown number. And this was around the time when I was getting a lot of those calls. Yeah. When you pick it up, it's like, what? congratulations, you have one of Deep Sea Cruise. Right. So I pick up the phone. I'm like, what? What do you want? And I'm all pissed off. And she's like, uh, is this John? I'm like, yeah, who's this? It's like, oh, it's Janine Garofalo. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like getting harassed by telemarketers all week. And she's like, no, no, I get it. Uh, she's like, yeah, I want to talk to you about the kids in the hall. I'm like, all right, let me just get my recorder out. She's like, well, you don't want to like do it another time or like schedule it? I'm like, no, 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 let's just go. She's like, oh, I thought you'd have to like write questions. And it's like, I'm been... Up yeah, to yeah, my yeah, ears yeah. writing a book about this thing right. like you know i'm trying to get her i'm trying to get her on the horn too uh i want to ask her larry sanders show questions yes i talked to her a bit about that because she and scott thompson were on that yeah um but she was she was great really for like just again someone who was a big fan of the kids yeah Mall, yeah and obviously such a sort of uh t to me janine garofalo sort of signifies the idea of alternative comedy in the stand-up space right, right um so she was very informed about that and told me a really nice story about how when she was on snl and when mark mckinney was on snl uh after the kids in the hall show ended which were kind of like dump years for snl no offense to them they had amazingly talented people yeah i know it was just a weird time just a weird time yeah. uh but they went out to a bar and she said something that yeah. like made mark mckinney laugh and that just like tickled her yeah, so much. Yeah, point of pride for her to make someone and like And another that funny story, she was supposed to be in Brain Candy. Oh. We ended up cutting the scene, but she was in Toronto shooting it. 
And the next morning she's like, could I meet the vacant lot? <laughs> like a sketch show <laughs> with Mark McKinney's brother that ran right. for like one season on right. CBC. And you know, she would have been like on the Ben Stiller show at the time, like pretty yeah. famous profile. And like, Janine was also in the stocking sketch with Bruce McCullough on Saturday Night Live. That's right. Yeah. That? Bruce McCullough made a lot of those short yeah, films. Yeah. The short films there. Yeah. 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 And so she played, I was just listening to uh, Bruce McCullough's album, Shame Based Man, the other day. Uh, I, I, I was going to say I dusted it off, but I found it on, on Apple Music. Another and, CD I used to listen to in my car. Incidentally. Oh, I, I have it. I have the CD. <laughs> I, I could have put it in my car today. All this to say, I was trying to give people a sense of what happened. Kids and all have a TV show. TV show interest starts to wane. They start and they start to feel like it's done. Uh, it's run its course. They stop doing the TV show. They start touring a little bit. They work on this movie, Brain Candy. It doesn't go well. The creative process is horrible. Yeah, yeah, Dave Foley is kind of essentially excommunicated from the troupe. And, and written out of the film. He doesn't get a writing credit. Yeah, so on there's the film. a lot of acrimony there. And then uh, uh, they don't really speak too much. They reconvene, and now they're sort of here and there. They did a TV show for CBC, uh, right. Death Comes to Town, and they will tour occasionally. So that's in a nutshell exactly what you've done yeah. with your book. You've told this story, but you've told it in a, in a very vivid and humorous way, and I don't care what anyone says. I I actually appreciated. Get on Amazon and. Uh, well, should I do that? I I appreciated your flourishes. Yeah, I appreciate as that, a writer, yeah. and I where I don't know where I started. I'm all over the place today. I apologize, but that's okay. What I was going to say is, it's not just a, a fan gushing about the kids in the hall. You are critical mm. of them on some level. You are critical of of certain sketches that maybe don't resonate or seem appropriate today. You are, you are, you know, it's fair to say that when I mentioned this recently uh, in print somewhere about, uh, about your book, um, where chemistry is often a term we overuse, mm-hmm. but it occurs to you, I think that they are, and they realize that at this point too, that they, beyond the demand and the name recognition, they seem to be beholden to one another creatively. They work best I like how you make it sound like it's some sort of like weird blood pact. <laughs> like every five think, years we must is. reunite and feed I the think. beast. <laughs> but it, it does. What, what you discover, uh, because you, you, I believe the book starts with you on the set of Dave Foley's show on CTV oh God, spun, spun out, which is not a good show uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not a good show. But Dave uh, is the star of the show, and it's uh, it's made in Canada, right? Yes. And and on one episode, it reeks uh, of being made in Canada, right? And on one episode, at least one episode, who knows how many by now? But the one that you recount in your book, the rest of the kids in the hall show up, right, to appear, and they work together, and they riff, and they kind of punch up some scenes, and it's just clear to you that this is good for them, yeah, to be working together, and they've come to after years apart. I mentioned Bruce and Bruce and Mark did some film work and SNL work. Scott, I think, had a has, still has this really interesting acting career. Kevin, as you mentioned, kind of was a character actor, did some stuff. Yeah, he was on Seinfeld famously yes, as a denim yes. vest. Yama, Yama, he teaches a Yama lot. Yamaha, Yama that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he teaches a lot of like uh, sketch workshops and stuff yes, like that. Now. Yes, but yeah, they're always they're always better when they're together and. To talk about two things that you kind of brought up. Yeah, sorry, I'm all over the place, no, but no, thank you okay. for trying to parse something out of <laughs> that's all okay. that. That's okay. It's late in the day for me, too, in a way. <laughs> um, but what I'm really attracted to thinking about and writing about is uh, contradictions that can't be reconciled. Yeah. Because this is really how I see the world. You're never going to have a cohesive view of something. You're always going to have varied 
opinions that clash with each other and are contingent on one another. So as far as writing the book, being a fan who's critical of it, that to me only makes sense. Yeah. Like I always make the analogy of it's like a, a sibling, right? Like I'm allowed to make fun of my sister, but if someone else does like, look out, you know, exactly. You, and the, I, you deeply love them, but you're also critical of them because you love them. Right, you know? Right. So that is something, uh, that I, I think the way that I approach a lot of things when I write journalism, sometimes not really. I mean, a lot of people think I'm just a hater, but a lot of times because I get assigned to review things that editors yeah. will know that I hate. Uh, so, no, but I mean, there are specific critiques like you uh, for Brain Candy. I mean, I remember watching on live television the at the movie episode at the movies right. episode with Siskel and Ebert where they feuded. Yes, they feud over Brain Candy. Ebert, was Ebert hated thumbs it. Down. Siskel hated thumbs it. up. Yeah, Siskel liked it. And but I'll tell you this: we showed Brain Candy at the Royal for the book launch here. A couple hundred people came out and. Uh, you know, my friends were there, but to support me, but like there were loads of strangers who were there to see brain candy. It's a good, and everyone was good. laughing yeah. along, yeah. you know, and it's the kind of thing it sort of aged well. Right. And, and, and you also mentioned John Doyle's review of, uh, for the globe and mail of death comes to town. And I think you try to take an even handed view of it, but you most, you, you don't necessarily agree with him. Uh, I he, he went off. He just was like, it's horrible. And uh, Well, don't get me started. On, I, I don't want to talk about John Doyle right now, necessarily. <laughs> but it, it's, no, but it's I mean, funny because con- like, John Doyle's favorite show in the universe is Corner Gas, mm-hmm. and Death Comes to Town is essentially a raunchy parody of right. a Corner Gas-style like parochial Canadian sitcom. I only raise these examples because it's true what you're saying. Like As a fan, you can be critical yeah. of something, of something you love, but when someone else is critical of it, yeah, the knives come out. Yeah, so you're you've done a uh, I think a really wonderful job of of including critiques of the kids in the hall by others, uh, by offering your own, and by also celebrating them for what they were. Which I wrote a review of your book for the Globe and Mail, and I thank you. You're welcome. And I step back and I'm like, is this too much? Have I gone into some kind of hyperbolic? <laughs> light speed here or something but i uh because but I, I i said some stuff about how as much as they were compared to something like monty python mm-hmm. i don't think there was anything like them i really don't no no i mean uh formally they're so different from python i mean i think there's sort of like you could create a family tree that sort of goes you know python kids in the hall yeah. mr show tim and eric whatever sure. um but again, this is something I really try to drive home in the book, too, is to me, they were sort of, if you look at the history of comedy, the first time when comedy became, for lack of a better word, cool. You know, my friend and I have a joke where it's like every time you reference a Monty Python sketch, you lose one sexual encounter from a lifetime allotment. <laughs> sure, sure <laughs> so, right. So I don't want to risk it by <laughs> going any further. But it's like there's there's not that sort of level of nerdiness. Like now we talk about comedy nerds, but Mm. it's like anything being a nerd is cool now, but the kids in the hall were sort of jaded and disaffected and funny. And it was like, it, feels cool they weren't lame yeah and snl you can be like yeah okay that those early casts were cool because they were just doing mountains of blow all the time but that doesn't necessarily come across on screen when you're watching like the bees yeah exactly and also with snl i don't think certain seasons have aged well yes i don't think much snl has aged well no because it's it's meant to be a very uh it's a topical reflection of whatever's going on at the time of their of their tapings whereas uh, I think I pointed this out in my review. I think one of the, the great... Uh, I mean, there's a couple of instances, as we've mentioned, or as I mentioned earlier, where you think 
that's probably a, a dated thing to have done. Right. I, actually, now that I think about it, I feel like the example that you mentioned was them lampooning the very notion of being politically incorrect. I'm trying to think of what I... Oh, the screw you taxpayers sketch? Or no, Buddy Cole. The Buddy Cole stuff I write a bit the about. Buddy Cole stuff, but there's also a sketch, I think, where Bruce is playing... Uh, a Chinaman. A, yes. I like a, sorry that I said Chinaman. In quotes. <laughs> but he's playing like a... Yeah, like yeah, a... Toothy. But it but seems self-aware. But, but the point of that sketch was it opens with this really offensive sketch, and then Mark McKinney comes out and that's one of my favorite sketches on right. the show and says, wow, what an offensive sketch. But right. Guess what? You just paid to see it. And that explains how the public funding structure of the CBC works right. and then keeps getting the audience to re- repeat the phrase, screw you, taxpayer. That's right. right. Um, which it's, I'm smiling now, like thinking <laughs> about is, it. Like it's still true. so funny to me, yeah. especially yeah. because we live in this sort of Canadian culture now that's like so timid and reserved about doing anything that'll get like an angry letter yeah. that might like incite something. But the kids overall, I think they didn't really do topical stuff. No. Like, and I like, think that serves them yeah. and their material well. Yeah. The show, I mean. Yeah, I mean, Scott would do like, you know queen elizabeth impressions yes that, that's topical for the last like 60 years she seems like she's going to be around a while it's never yeah. going to go out of style yeah. yeah okay well anyway all this to say uh i i just uh as a fan of them i appreciate what you've done with this book thank you i want i do wonder about one thing uh at least one thing we you talk about the fact that most of these interviews were uh conducted with the kids in the hall uh what two three years ago or something when you were doing the oral history piece sure, or yeah. or maybe some of them are even from before that have they commented on this book are they behind the book it's an unauthorized biography right. if that's not clear i think they have their own official book coming out in like 2 years which i was talking to them about wanting to write uh i don't know how boring this is going to sound paul myers is writing a mike myers yeah, yeah, brother I know paul. Yeah. uh who wrote a book about the bare naked ladies um and that's fine. I mean, some of them supported me writing it. Some of them, no answer. But like Scott sent me an email being like, I think it's great. There could be 20 books about the kids in the hall. You know, uh, right. so I don't know if there's any like tension. In a way, I, I don't really care. because Have they mentioned the book in any I think, context? I think they're, uh, I don't know what to say, like denying it or something. But it's like. <laughs> I tagged them. My reason is I, I you know, we tagged them when yeah, we yeah, wrote yeah. the review. And I saw that normally if Scott, like I've had Scott Thompson on this show. I've had. Bruce McCullough on this show and uh, uh, every time they've been on they circulate it you know whoever does the kids in the hall stuff sure. circulates it yeah uh, I don't know I think they're trying uh, to sort of like focus on the, the, the other Paul book. Myers book I see yeah. okay um, which is totally fine okay uh, <laughs> sorry maybe this is too inside but I was just curious if they were like this is amazing thank you yeah. for doing this well I think that like they think that there are like skeletons in their closet that are going to be rattled out and like sure. the, in a way the idea of doing an official biography doesn't appeal to me because all the things that you're talking about that you say you like about the book even the tone it's like something I don't think I'd be able to get away no. with and I also as a journalist don't necessarily love this idea of giving the subjects like sign off power yeah yeah no and that's that's all well and good i just that's the only thing i was wondering because i thought it was odd that they were being silent about this i think really monumental contribution to their legacy well maybe they'll hear this and uh <laughs> change their tune. maybe i'll write scott a note if anyone's gonna do anything <laughs> about it it's scott well anyway it's it's fantastic i hope people check it out this is a book about the kids in the hall that's right it's out on uh ecw, ECW press ecw press and so what's next for you what are you working on well, I'm putting together a proposal right now uh, for a second book that I'm hoping to get shopped around in the early winter. Okay. 
which I don't want to jinx. No, 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 don't, you don't have to talk about it. But it'll be different than this. Okay. Um, More nonfiction or? Nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. Good. But this is like, too, maybe too early in my life to say, this is my magnum opus book that I've always wanted to write. But it's true. Oh, okay. And I sent the proposal to my agent and he's like, this is great. You just have to sort of change this, this, and this. And right. then we'll kind of get it out. So uh, again, I have a really bad habit of jinxing things. Uh, so I, I wish I could stop talking. No, 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 it's fine. I Sorry. I just wondered if you've had uh, any, But yeah, yeah writing, uh, you know, I'm in the Globe and Mail and McLean's about every week-ish. Yeah. Um, this might interest you. I'm doing an interview with, do you know A.J. Weberman? Yes, of course. So I'm going to profile A.J. Weberman. Really? Which I'm very excited about. Because uh, with all the Dylan stuff, for yeah. people listening who don't know, A.J. Weberman is a sort of... He's a miscreant, really. He's a, a, he's a troll. He was like one of the first one of the real rock trolls. trolls. Yeah. But he sort of became famous or infamous by sifting through Bob Dylan's trash in the late 60s, early 70s. Being attacked by Dylan on the street, Being apparently. attacked by Dylan yeah. on the street and harassing him with... Uh, Various phone calls, which you can listen to on YouTube, which are hilarious. I have a vinyl record of some of those. And phone writing calls. what I have here, I mean, obviously you're just listening to this, but the uh, Dylan to English Dictionary <laughs> by AJ Weber. Weberman. So uh, th- these are people that I really like to talk to, and I think with the, you know Dylan getting the Nobel, it's like, oh, Oxford poetry professor Christopher Ricks weighs right. in. It's like, no, I want to hear about the guy <laughs> who is like going Go through, through Dylan's garbage. garbage and like has these YouTube videos. I won't uh-huh. even repeat the things he says about Dylan yeah, these days. Yeah. But this is basically a guy who's like, in 1971, like, Dylan, you've lost it. I've kind of okay. lost track of AJ Weberman, so it's interesting. Are you talking to him, did you say? I spoke to him on the phone last week. Just How to was be it? Like, uh, he was fine. I was like, well, you know, would you agree to be do a couple long form interviews. He's like, yeah, that's fine. He was, you know, very curt, uh, but it should be interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's, who's that for? Uh, still, I don't want to say anything okay. right away. Shopping it around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and where can people learn more about you and the world of the internet? I have a Squarespace. Uh-huh. Follow me on Twitter, I guess. I'm so annoying on Twitter. Uh, you have a weird uh, Twitter uh, name. John Semley 3000. 3000. Yeah. That's what I, I just couldn't remember. Yeah. John uh, Semley 3000. On Twitter, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the best. <laughs> if you want to know literally anything I think about, what about anything. Where, where can people get the book? You can get the book on uh, bookstores, mom and pop bookstore. Yeah. Uh, if they don't have it, you can order it in. Or you can always go on the internet, ECW's website, Amazon. Yeah. I always want to say Amazon last. Yeah, you should have. Yeah. It's it's available. People can find you it. You can buy it wherever books are sold. And Kids in the Hall fans should pick this thing up. Kids it's, in the Hall fans should pick it up. And also, I believe the CBC put all of the Kids in the Hall on their website for free. Did uh, they? Yeah, so oh. a good occasion to get reacquainted. Oh, good. Okay, I'm going to go home and watch all of that right now. Bada-bing. <laughs> all right, Vishwal, thanks for John, talking to me. thank you so much it. for being on the show. And uh, like I was saying, best of luck with everything going forward. And people should read this stupid book you wrote. It's not stupid. It was a bad way to end it. I know it. what you mean. I was, it's great. Yeah. I, I've said it enough times. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. Thank you, John. Okay, thanks. Hey, if you want to hear more of John Semley and I in conversation, you can, sort of. We uh, are going to be appearing together on a panel. If you hear this in time, that is, you can join us live <laughs> at the Polish Combatants Hall on Friday, December 2nd. This is part of Long Winter. I'm staging a version of my Long Night with Vish Khanna show. It's going to be a panel discussing 2016. We're going to review 2016. Great year. Fantastic year. Nothing bad happened this year. On the panel, besides John and myself, Freddie Rivas, comedian Freddie Rivas, Laura Hermiston of the band Twist, Jill Krajewski of Vice, and Aliyah Pabani of the Imposter Podcast. So that's happening 7.30 at Long Winter, Friday, December 2nd, 
at the Polish Combatants Hall in Toronto, 206 Beverly Street. I like John so much after this conversation we had, I thought he would be an ideal candidate for the panel. So thanks, John, for being on the show and, uh, and, and joining me on this panel. This is the 290th episode of Creative Control, and you can learn more about the show on my website, vishkana.com. It is available as a podcast on iTunes and audioboom.com. You can also go to patreon.com to make a flexible monthly donation to the podcast. We're also on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. Interact with us there on Twitter, at vishcreative. And a version of the show airs every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time at cfru.ca around the world or CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph and the surrounding area. Uh, The show would not be possible without some sponsors. The Bookshelf is an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, movie theater, and restaurant located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit bookshelf.ca. Also... Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas, and you can make stuff. Like, they've make, they have the idea uh, to make uh, great pizzas, but you can also choose your own, do whatever you like. But I, I trust them. They know what they're doing. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or trocaderoguelph.ca. Call them at 519-829-2444. I think I had enough fours there. For pickup and delivery in Guelph. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. And I think that's all I'm going to say for now. John Semley, his book about the kids in the hall. You know, I uh, went ahead and ordered the complete DVD box set off of eBay, uh, even though John mentions in the interview that you can watch all of the kids in the hall for free at cbc.ca. I still went ahead and got the DVDs. That's how much of an impact. And I've seen most of it. I mean, I'm a fan, but still, I don't have everything. So I ordered it. So I urge you to also go on. It doesn't, you can't get it easily. So if you want to get the complete series, go to cbc.ca to watch it. Or why am I plugging eBay? (laughs) I don't know. All I'm saying is the kids in the hall are great. John's great. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.